Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. Britain raises its terror alert to the highest level as ISIS claims credit for the bombing in Manchester. What happened inside the world of ISIS in the hours after the attack? And the former CIA director is the latest U.S. official to testify about Russia. His message as he realized the presidential election was under attack. Cut it out. It's Wednesday, May 24th. In the early hours after the bombing in Manchester, we waited to find out who and why. That gap between an act of terror and the claim of responsibility has become a familiar, terrible kind of limbo. My colleague Rukmini Kalamaki, who covers ISIS, explains what we aren't seeing during that time. So last night, I was getting ready to go to my boot camp class, and I would say 20, 20 minutes before that, I started getting messages from a source of mine who was saying something's happened in Manchester. Good evening, everyone. We're coming on the air because there has been a deadly incident at an arena in Manchester, England. Now, I get these, you know, several times a day. Every time a gas canister explodes, I have sources who are sending me messages going, is this ISIS, you know? Mm. This could have been some sort of malfunction or explosion inside of some sort of equipment, concert equipment, arena equipment. It could have also been something more nefarious and explosion, some sort of attack. At this point, we simply don't know. And so I started looking at the ISIS telegram channels. There's always chatter. They're always so excited when any harm uh, comes Mm. to their so-called enemies, which is all of us. But you can't really gauge much from that. When you say telegram and you say you're looking at it in chat rooms, tell me what you mean. What is that and what you're seeing? So the main engine through which ISIS now propagates its propaganda as well as their claims of responsibility is an app that people have on their phone called Telegram. Mm -hmm. You can download it at the App Store. So for probably two years now, I've been following them and I've managed to infiltrate myself into these channels. And so I started looking at the ISIS Telegram channels. First thing I searched was Manchester. And what I came up with uh, was a whole bunch uh, of rooms that were talking about this incident, and they had translated Manchester into Arabic and were hashtagging it. So when the people in an online chat room on Telegram take the name of a city where an, yes. a, where an explosion has just happened, yes. that hashtag alone signals exactly They're what They're trying to, to brand it. They're already trying to brand. So after every single attack, it's hashtag Paris, hashtag mm-hmm. Brussels, hashtag whatever city it is. Mm-hmm. They are so savvy on social media that they know the hashtag convention, right? And the second thing that they do is they try to piggyback onto other popular 
hashtags. So, for example, they were putting hashtag Manchester, hashtag Ariana Grande. Hmm. Uh, and so, so the anybody, performer who the was performer singing who was singing right and, 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 and whose fans are among the dead. So at this point, I'm seeing what I would say is a very loud burst of celebration. They're making posters, these online posters that basically show uh, a knife dripping with blood and the wow. imagery uh, of London and messages about how they're going to bring the violence uh, to London. Um, but at this point, there has not been an official claim by ISIS. And this is something that people get very confused about. Mm -hmm. There are official ISIS channels, of which one of them is called Nashir, another one is called Amok. They're well known among people. And these are digital forums? These are chat rooms within uh, Telegram. So there'll be a chat room. And then in there, they will put out a bulletin, which has Nashir written at the Mm -hmm. top, or which has Amok, their logo, uh, written at the top. And that's where the official ISIS claim of responsibility comes out. And only once that comes out can you say that ISIS has claimed credit for it. Mm -hmm. Where people get confused is they often take what is being put out by ISIS supporters and even perhaps by individual ISIS members, and they confuse that for a statement by the Islamic State. Now, no group has claimed responsibility, but does this have the markings of ISIS? So I think it was up until about one in the morning. Um, I kept on scanning uh, these groups. There were a couple of fake claims that came out, and I spent a lot of time um, basically explaining to to colleagues why these were fake claims. What's kind of mind-blowing about it is it's suddenly like this idea that there's a fake news debate in the world of ISIS. Yeah. And so how do you cut through that to make sure that it's really ISIS? Because I know I know that there's a chain of custody here. ISIS has now carried out so many both directed and inspired attacks. We've had dozens of them. Mm -hmm. And it's always the same. The claim of responsibility comes out typically through a mock, sometimes through Nashir. It comes out on these telegram channels. These formal ISIS-controlled channels. These these formal channels. It looks a specific way. It's usually a mock has a particular logo and a particular background. Nashir has a particular one. And then from there, it's translated into other languages. And then it's repropagated through their radio station through the Daily Bulletin. I mean, they have a procedure for doing this. So it's actually quite homogenous. And then you realize, okay, there's there's a system here. This is not just a chance. They're using copy and paste language, mm. stock phrases, you know, from one claim to another. And how yeah. long does it usually take? What's the, what's the pattern a between attack and yeah. credit? Less than a day, but usually at least 12 or so hours. This was 14 and a half. Um, Silly question, so, but w- w- what happens in those 14 hours? Why does it take so long? We don't really know. I mean, we've, we have theories about it. One theory is that there's a vetting process, you know, that whoever the big man is that needs to sign off on this, whoever the editor is of the ISIS news agency may need to sign off on Mm -hmm. it. And maybe that takes time. We don't know what time zone, you know, they're in. Right. Uh, There's been speculation that they're that they're in Mosul. There's speculation that they're in Turkey, that they're in the Middle East, that they're somewhere else. We don't know. So the claim actually came out at 7.50 in the morning. The Islamic militant group ISIL has claimed responsibility for the murders. And it was using their logo, Mm. red and blue uh, background that they typically use. I mean, it's no secret that what they do is they wait for the media to report what has happened. Mm -hmm. And then they take those details, the death toll, the number of people injured, and details about how it occurred, and then add their add their religious language around it. Let's talk for a minute about what we know about the attacker himself so far in the Manchester attack. 
Well, right now, all that we have really is an, is an age and uh, a name. Uh, mm-hmm. Police have identified him as a man called Salman Abadi. They say he's 22 years old. We were told that he's a British national of Libyan uh, origin. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the types of ISIS attackers that we've seen in Europe before, he very much fits the mold. Young, early 20s, basically what I would call the 1.5 generation. There's been reporting to show that it's the children of immigrants, the ones Mm. who are born here, not the first generation who comes, but it's their children who end up feeling somewhat isolated, caught between two worlds. They don't completely Mm. fit in. And that creates an opening for radicalization. Okay, so I want to talk about where this attack happened, which was Britain. We're in Europe. What are some of the differences when it comes to acts like this there Mm -hmm. versus the United States and the attacks Mm. that we've had here when we think about this attack? Well, one of the problems in Europe is, of course, proximity to the territory that the Islamic State controls. Mm -hmm. It's much easier from Europe to jump in a bus or jump in a ferry if you're in England and make your way overland in order to reach ISIS territory. Mm -hmm. Uh, In America, we, we are insulated by an, ocean. by an enormous body of water. And a second issue is that in Europe, there have been such large numbers of people that have gone, hundreds and hundreds uh, from France, from Belgium, uh, from, from Britain. And, and as a result, you have basically pools of people that can act as peer-to-peer uh, recruiters, hmm. right? These are people that were in your neighborhood that you knew, or there may be the brother of your best friend, or their actual human beings that you can then talk to online and who help you move into violence. In America, there has been some peer-to-peer recruiting, but much less. Here, the recruitment has mainly been digital. And of course, that's that's a higher bar. Uh, so you're cost. saying the physical proximity of ISIS recruiters yes. in Europe yep. is a more compelling vehicle mm-hmm. to turn someone into an attacker willing to give up? Of course. Of course. Mostly his. Yeah. There aren't that many female attackers in Europe. Yeah. His life. Of course. So I was really struck by reporting in The Times and elsewhere after this attack in mm-hmm. Manchester in which intelligence officials basically seemed to say, we expected something like this. We were on high alert. We knew it might happen. That's not a familiar feeling in, in the U.S. that this kind of maybe a bit of resignation that mm-hmm. this is just going to happen. Yeah. And I wonder if in Europe that is now the perspective, this kind of fixed reality that these attacks will happen and become a feature of life in mm-hmm. Europe. Mm-hmm. Is that the case? I certainly felt that in France. When you hear the French prosecutor speak after every single attack, um, I really respect that man. I mean, he comes out and really levels with the public and says, this is what we know, these are the details, and doesn't hide anything. The terrorist attacks which we all feared and which we had in mind uh, as far as the risk is concerned, every time we thought of the threat, these terrorist attacks have hit France yesterday evening. Our fight against uh, terrorism is strongly determined. It appears to me that that, you know, in America, terrorist attacks are still such a politically uh, addled thing. Having an attack by a foreign terrorist group on American soil could be disastrous to an administration, to their perception of of the security that they were that they were meant to bring. Um, and so, in America, after every terrorist attack, 
we instead see officials coming out and sort of throwing water, you know, on the theory. Oh, we're not so sure. Oh, it could be an inspired attack. Oh, 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 the guy might have been uh, mentally ill or um, he was just a criminal. Mm -hmm. We see all of that kind of thing. In Europe, I think that we've cut through that BS Hmm. and they're now so frequent. And some of these attacks have been so deadly that I think they're really starting to level uh, with the problem, Hmm. Um, which for me as a reporter is, is, is interesting to see. Rukmini, thank you very much. My pleasure. The work undertaken throughout the day has revealed that it is a possibility we cannot ignore that there is a wider group of individuals linked to this attack. On Tuesday night, British Prime Minister Theresa May delivered an update on national television. The threat level should be increased for the time being, from severe to critical. That's the country's highest threat level. The decision gives British troops the authority to go into the streets and replace the police in guarding major cities and sites. We stand in absolute solidarity with the people of the United Kingdom. In the West Bank, President Trump condemned the attack and offered his condolences to Britain. So many young, beautiful, innocent people living and enjoying their lives murdered by evil losers in life. I won't call them monsters because they would like that term. They would think that's a great name. I will call them from now on losers because that's what they are. They're losers. We'll be right back. When times became uncertain, Womply pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Womply has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Womply helps small businesses thrive. Visit Womply.com to learn more. Um, Until this point, what was your role in the FBI's investigation into the um, Russian hacking of the 2016 election? In hearing after hearing inside the U.S. Capitol over the past few weeks. Has anyone in the White House spoken to you directly about the Russia investigation? Lawmakers always seem to find a way back to the same subject. Do you have any evidence, are you aware of any evidence that would suggest that in the 2016 campaign... Anybody in the Trump campaign colluded with the Russian government or intelligence services in an improper fashion. On Tuesday, it happened at not one, but two hearings. My colleague Matt Apuzzo told us about one of them. Hello. What happened in the House Intelligence Committee on Tuesday? Well, we got to hear from John Brennan. As you know, I served as director of the Central Intelligence Agency from March 2013 to January of this year. Really, the great takeaway for me was we got to hear from Brennan about what he was getting all worked up about last year. It should be clear to everyone that Russia brazenly interfered in our 2016 presidential election process and that they undertook these activities despite our strong protests and explicit warning that they not do so. The story he tells is kind of frightening. Basically, he says, 
last summer. I was convinced uh, in the summer that the Russians were trying to interfere in the election. And they were very aggressive. They had it was a multifaceted effort. Russian hackers, propagandists, you know, all the stuff that's been reported that's out there. Mm -hmm. That's all happening. And, and the information is unfolding before their eyes. And while that's happening. I encountered and I'm aware of information and intelligence that um, revealed contacts and interactions between Russian officials and U.S. persons involved in the uh, Trump campaign. This is incredibly alarming over the CIA. Raised questions in my mind, again, whether or not the Russians were able to gain the cooperation of those individuals. I don't know whether or not such collusion, that's your term, such collusion existed. I don't know. But I know that there was a sufficient basis of information and intelligence that required further uh, investigation by the Bureau to determine whether or not U.S. persons were actively conspiring, colluding with Russian officials. Which is not a totally insane thing to think if you're the director of the CIA because you are starting to understand. And I think that they uh, most of the time believed that Secretary Clinton was going to win the election. And so their efforts to denigrate her were not just to try to diminish her chances of winning, but also to uh, hurt her um, for her eventual presidency. So they either want a damaged Hillary Clinton to win or Donald Trump. They felt that, that uh, Mr. Trump, being a, a bit of an outsider, uh, and that they have in the past had, had some good relations with businessmen who happened to elevate into positions of, of government authority. What did Brennan say that he did as then director of the CIA when he learned about this? Presumably he was very alarmed and would have taken some actions. So in late July, we set up a group in uh, late July that included the FBI and NSA. I wanted to make sure that every information and bit of intelligence that we had was shared with the Bureau so that they could take it. It was well beyond my mandate as director of CIA to follow on uh, any of those leads uh, that involved U.S. persons. But I made sure that anything that was involving U.S. persons, including anything involving the uh, individuals involved in the Trump campaign, was shared with the Bureau. And we now know this is kind of what all triggered the FBI investigation that hmm. Jim Comey confirmed back in March. The other thing we learned, which is really new and really interesting, was in August— I spoke to Alexander Bortnikov. His counterpart in the Russian Federal Security Service. The FSB. Russian and he gets the head of security Russian security on the phone and basically <laughs> says, cut it out. Wow. I warned Mr. Bortnikov— that if Russia pursued this course, it would destroy any near-term prospect for improvement in relations between Washington and Moscow and would undermine constructive engagement even on matters of mutual interest. But then he, he has this moment where he says, and it's not going to work, and it's going to totally hmm. backfire. I told Mr. Bortnikov that if Russia had such a campaign underway, it would be certain to backfire. I said that all Americans, regardless of political affiliation or whom they might support in the election— cherish their ability to elect their own leaders without outside interference or disruption. I said American voters would be outraged by any Russian attempt to interfere in the election. That's an extraordinary phone call. It's totally, yeah, but it was also totally wrong, right? Uh, all the polls show it's a totally partisan issue. Whether the Russian meddling... Yeah, mattered. whether whether it even happened, right? You're, you're much more likely to believe that Russia got in and mucked around in the election if you're a Democrat. And you're much less likely to believe that it happened or that it, if it did happen, that it mattered if you're a Republican. Matt, given everything we heard, 
from Brennan, how much deeper is our understanding of what may be the essential question of the president, his campaign, and potential collusion with Russia? I think we have a deeper understanding of how this all unfolded, but I don't think we have a clear understanding of whether there's any there there. Hmm. If I'm a diehard Trump supporter, I read this and say, okay, I get it. You got really worked up last summer. Well, now we're this summer and we still haven't seen any direct evidence of collusion. Mm -hmm. And yet the president is totally under siege for it. This must be a partisan issue. If I'm a hardcore Democrat and I think, you know, Hillary had the election stolen from her, then I'm going to say, yes, see, this proves there was so much there that the CIA director, you know, was freaking out and formed this special group to look into it. And all of the dominoes have since fallen from that. So as always in Washington, where you stand often comes down to where you sit. Matt. Yes. Thank you for joining us and thank you for watching all these hearings so carefully. I really appreciate it. This is like the favorite part of my day. Really? Yeah, I love talking to you. I appreciate that. But I, I, I was surprised to hear you say the favorite. Yeah, one of the top, <laughs> top favorite things. All right, till next time. Bye. Bye. Here's what else you need to know today. Former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn who has refused to comply with a subpoena from the Senate committee investigating his ties to Russia, now faces two new subpoenas from the same committee, this time related to his business's ties to Russia. We've taken the actions that we feel are appropriate right now. The committee chairman, Senator Richard Burr, says Flynn could face legal consequences. If, in fact, uh, there's not a response, we'll seek additional counsel advice on how to proceed forward. Uh, at the end of that option is a contempt charge. And I've said that everything is on the table. And on the fourth and final day of his trip to the Middle East. We are here at Yad Vashem to honor the memory of six million Jews murdered in the Holocaust. President Trump visited Israel's Holocaust memorial with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, met with the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank, and said both leaders want the same thing. I had a meeting this morning with President Abbas and can tell you that the Palestinians are ready to reach for peace. I know you've heard it before. I am telling you, that's what I do. They are ready to reach for peace. And my meeting with my very good friend, Benjamin, I can tell you also that he is reaching for peace. The president then flew from Israel to Italy where he will meet today with the Pope. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com daily. netsuite.com daily.